Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We continue our study in the life of Joseph. Let me say a couple things before I read this passage. Uh, if you're a skeptic this morning, this is one of those chapters I hope you, you pay attention to because the question that should be raised in our minds is, why would God include something like this in His Word if it's not God's Word? Look at all the other holy books of the world, you will not find something like this. Second, uh, for little ears here this morning, there's some things that are going to be hard to hear. So if you have questions, ask your parents. And parents, if you feel stumped, just say, I don't know. Okay? That's the best thing to do. But uh, we, we're never going to go past parts of God's Word that might be hard for us to hear or culturally insensitive. But that's where we are this morning. And before we hear Genesis 38, let's pray together. Our Father, every... Every page of this word is about Jesus, and in this story, it's hard to see him, but would you make him clear to us? Would you make him beautiful and believable, we pray, for we ask it all in his name, amen. Genesis 38, beginning at verse 1, this is God's holy, inspired, and therefore inerrant word. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn son, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste his semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took her off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was growing up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him, and she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. 
When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the living God will stand forever and ever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Grown up most of my life in South Carolina and um, deep south, one of the things that that you learn early on is people want to know about two things when you meet them. Who are your people and where are you from? And this came home to me when we moved to Mississippi. Uh, one of our neighbors came across to greet me, and he said, that, that's an unusual last name. Are you Emily and Roy's son? And I said, I am. He's like, well, we found out we were related by marriage after talking together and hadn't known it for, for years and years, and we just happened to be living across the street from each other. And here we come this morning in the Bible to a story about our family, our people, and our place. That's what this is about. And in a general sense, that's what the whole story of the life of Joseph is about. It's a story about how God brought us, his people, together through this broken, sinful family. Now, let me give you the context again here. We've been through Genesis 37, learned about Joseph. He's been shipped off in slavery down to Egypt as we ended chapter 37. And then we get chapter 38, and we want to ask, like, why this, why now? Why is there this, why is there this interlude from where we ended in chapter 37 and where we begin here in chapter 38? Well, I can assure you it's on purpose. If you have your Bibles open, you'll notice that Genesis 38, 1, and Genesis 39, 1 begin with the exact same phrases. Now Judah went down, now Joseph went down. So Moses has a purpose for putting these chapters side by side. Moreover, as you read this chapter, and it covers a long time, you'll notice that as kids grow up, Sheila grows up. So the span here is about 20 to 22 years, almost the exact amount of time that Joseph was down in Egypt. So all the events we're going to read about after this with Joseph happened while all this was going on with Judah. Judah. 
So what God wants us to see is he's at work in both areas, and that's surprising. We're going to be surprised when we see that he's at work in Joseph's life, and I'm pretty sure we're going to be really surprised to see that he's at work in Judah's life. But that's what's going on. That's where we are, and here's what I want us to see. Judah's sin teaches us the importance of walking by faith in God's revealed will when that faith seems to fail. It teaches us the importance of walking by faith in God's Word, even when <clears throat> excuse me, our faith seems to fail. So those will be our two points this morning. When faith fails, guess what happens? Fear takes over. That's what we see in Judah's life, in Tamar's life. When faith fails, fear takes over. But here's the remedy. We have to walk by faith, not by fear. Walking by faith, not by fear. Let's just walk through this story up until the turning point. So we meet Judah. As I mentioned, he's going down. Notice also another phrase that you don't ever want to read in Scripture, because every time you read it, something bad is about to happen. Just like when you read, they went down. He turned aside, figuratively and literally. How do we know he turned aside? He married a Canaanite. They weren't supposed to do that. Judah knew better. He is basically saying, looking at his father in grief, seeing how his father loved Joseph the best, I don't want anything else to do with my family. I'm going to rebel against my parents and do things my way. And so then he takes this woman as his wife. And notice the language there that echoes so much else in Genesis. He saw and took. That's the language of lust, not love, as one author put it. That's the language that you read in Genesis 3, when Eve saw that the fruit was good and took. It's a language of un, undisciplined, unself-restrained conduct. That's what's happening with Judah. And then she gives him these sons, Ur and Onan. Now, up until this point, God surely has put people to death. We've read about the flood already. This is the first time in biblical history that God puts somebody to death directly for their sin. First, he didn't tell us why he put Ur to death. It's just that he was wicked in God's sight. But then we read about Judah saying to his other son, Onan, now go do the duty of a brother-in-law. We'll come back to that in a second. Now, Judah steps in and says this, but we need to ask the question, where has Judah been all this time? Notice that it says that she named their sons, that she named the sons uh, that were given to her, not the father. So Judah's the first deadbeat dad, okay, in, in biblical history here. He's not done his duty. In fact, he was in Kezeb when his last son was born, meaning he wasn't even present for them. And then notice as well that as she's doing these things, he comes along and says, now do the duty, even as he is not modeled doing duty. So then we meet Onan, and this is the law of what's called leveret marriage. You can read about it in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 to 10. Why is this in the law of God? Okay, this was practiced before Deuteronomy was instituted. It was given by, by God's grace to his people, even by the time of the patriarchs in Genesis. Why did God do it this way? So if a man died, his brother was expected to marry the wife. Why? Because in this society, women were the most vulnerable. And what a man was supposed to do, what a man's brother was supposed to do, was to make sure inheritance continued, 
tribes continued, and that the woman was cared for and protected in a society that didn't have any social safety nets. But instead of what we, re- what we read here about Onan is, he did not impregnate his brother's wife. Why? Because Ur was the firstborn, which means he would get a double portion of the inheritance. And Onan knew that so that <clears throat> if she became pregnant by Onan, then that son would get all of Ur's inheritance. So Onan, like Judah, was a very selfish man. And that's keyed in by this little word, whenever he went into her. Here's the point of what he's doing, friends. He's using her for his own pleasure. That's it. There's no love here. He's not taking care of her. He was selfish for himself. He said, "I I want this money for me. I don't want this inheritance going to a possible son. And so God strikes him dead. And then Judah fails again. He should have given Shelah to her. But why doesn't he? He says, now go back to your father's house and put on the garments of widowhood and, you know, we'll handle it later. You know what he's hoping, friends? He's hoping she'll die so he doesn't have to deal with this. And then she waits patiently. But why did Judah do this? The text tells us. Because he was afraid. He's 0 for 2 on surviving children at this point. And so he rightly says, maybe God's going to kill Shelah too. Instead of stepping back and saying, wonder why God is killing my kids directly. So at this point, Tamar appears to be the most righteous person in the story. She waits patiently. Here's a woman who's been abused, as it were. And notice the seriousness of this, friends. If they ever wonder how serious God takes our sin, and specifically how we're supposed to treat each other in relationships, particularly in the marriage relationship, just look at this text. God directly kills two men. Reminds me of a sermon series preached by the the great Donald Gray Barnhouse at 10th Presbyterian Church about 100 years ago. He preached a sermon series called Men Whom God Struck Dead. And guess what? It was a pretty lengthy series because it happens a lot in the Bible. God takes these things seriously. That's, how, that's what our sin does. That's what it deserves. And so then here comes Tamar, waits patiently, and like all of us, gets tired of waiting. Now there's a textual clue here. It says she put on a veil. Where else have we read about somebody putting on a veil to deceive a man? go back to uh, Judah's great-grandfather, Abraham. When he was deceived, he get, or, or, I'm sorry, go back to his father, uh, Jacob. When he was deceived, how? By Leah wearing a veil when Laban gave, her him in merit, gave him to her in marriage. And so what we read here is that Judah should have recognized something was going on. Next, we read that, that she knows something's happening with Judah because he's going up to sheep shearing. Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense to us in the 21st century, but as one author put it, think spring break at Daytona Beach with college students. That's sheep shearing time, okay? So, in other words, what's happening here is Judah is saying, my wife has died. I don't want responsibility. I'm going to go up and throw it down. I'm going to party. And so that's what he does. He says there's a prostitute. He's a selfish man. He loves to gratify his lusts. So he says, let me pay you. 
Jesus says, give me a pledge. Now, something else that really doesn't make sense in our culture, a staff, a cord, a signet ring. That's the ancient equivalent of your driver's license and your debit card. That's what she's asking for. He says, let me have those, and then you can pay me. Young goat would have been pretty expensive. So he says, sure. And so he goes into her, and she becomes pregnant, and then he takes off, and then he tries to save face. And he says, he sends his buddy back and you know, says, hey, make sure you pay her. And he's like, nobody's seen her. And he blames him as well. He's like, because we're going to get laughed at because you didn't find her. So what we see here, friends, is that these sins that we think are little, the way we conduct our lives that seems so kind of, maybe this is not that big of a deal, are huge deals to God. The other thing we see is the possibility for all of us of doing things we never imagined. We read this and it kind of grosses us out. Here's Judah committing essentially incest with his daughter-in-law, and Moses makes it clear that this is the only time it happened, as we're going to see about that in a moment, and we think to ourselves, ew, I would never do that. The minute we say that, The minute we say, I'd never do that, you're already lost. You've already lost. No, no, no. Again, as we said last week, any of us is capable of anything given the right circumstances at any time. Notice also how Judah's repeating the sins of the family. He learned this behavior, y'all. He saw it in his home. And everybody in here, therefore, is carrying a past. We're passing on things to our kids and grandkids. We have given them things unintentionally we did not mean to give them. We've taught them patterns of relating. And if you sit back and think about it long enough, it will terrify you. The good news is, as we're going to see, God has grace for broken families. But everybody in here is part of a broken family, even if you have a good family. There's brokenness. There's sin. And it has consequences. That's what we're seeing at the outset of this story. We also see that both Tamar and Judah don't trust God's plan. Now, isn't that that so much like us? Let me just take matters into my own hands when things don't go my way. And waiting's hard. I don't want to minimize that. You might be waiting through an illness, through financial difficulties, through cancer, just want it to be done. That's natural. That's normal. But here's what happened here. They didn't want to wait anymore. And maybe it's, it's in our society, nobody wants to wait till marriage to engage in the only place where God says is the safest, the only place to have safe sex, as it were, is in the boundaries of covenant marriage. And our society mocks that today. It says, no, you know, sex is a contact sport. Do with whoever you want to. And that's being inculcated all over the place instead of saying God's way, which is waiting. Maybe maybe you don't want to wait for anything. So we become self-indulgent people, don't we? We want it right now, right away. So we don't save, we don't wait, and then we wonder why our lives are a mess. That's exactly what happened here with Judah and Tamar. But there's good news. When, when fear takes over and we stop walking by faith, we need to start walking by faith. So let's pick up the story again. Judah's embarrassed, and then somebody comes to him, and he sees an opportunity. 
oh, I can finally get rid of her. I mean, think about where this guy's mindset was. They say to him, hey, she's pregnant by immorality. He, he's secretly going to himself, yes. And then see how cruel this guy is. Go burn her. So we know he hasn't changed yet. He's the same guy who said, yeah, let's sell our brother into slavery. Great idea. This is a cruel man. His conscience is seared. And as she's being brought out, he hears words that he himself has heard recently and said. What does she say? Please identify whose these are. What did they just say to their dad in the last chapter when they brought the deceiving coat of many colors that Joseph wore, that they had dipped in goat's blood? What did they say to Jacob? They say, please identify whose this is. It was not lost on Judah. She says that to him, and there comes the turning point. She is more righteous than I. And then notice Moses makes it a point to say he did not know her. He did not have sexual relations with her again ever. And then notice what happens to Tamar. Well, actually, let's let's pause and think about Judah real quick. He's been redeemed, friends. This is the turning point for him in his life. Decades he's walked as a cruel, heartless man, and then in this moment God steps in and opens his eyes. And here's the beauty of it. Where did all this happen? Happen? Enaim. You know what that means in Hebrew? Eye-opening. His eyes were opened at this very place, and now they're opened spiritually. And then it's even, even better for Tamar, because she receives twins. Now, whenever you hear twins in Scripture, you need to realize that the original readers of this would have gone, that's a blessed woman. Not only has she got kids, she got two of them. That is a big deal. This means there's a blessed family here. And this is God's way of saying to Tamar, welcome back to the family. I took two of your husbands. I'm giving you two sons. And if you have any doubt how big of a deal this was in the history of God's dealings with his people. If you turn over to the book of Ruth, chapter 4, verse 12, when Boaz and Ruth are fixing to get married, what do the women of the village say to Ruth? May you be blessed like Tamar. Isn't that amazing? That this woman who had been a prostitute, who'd committed this sin of incest, all of a sudden has become a benediction for God's people. Isn't that just like God? To take a woman who'd been hurt, forgotten, abused, and redeemer, and to take a man that everybody would have looked at and said, there is a scoundrel who deserves to be locked up and have the key thrown away, and instead he takes him out of the prison of selfishness and redeems him. Nobody is beyond the reach of grace. Now, and they start walking by faith, not by fear. God shows up. There's still consequences. He's got two dead sons. He's got what he did on his conscience for the rest of his life. But as we see as this story goes on, this was the breaking point for Judah. 
Now, what's this mean for us today? We need to just do two things real quick as we finish up. We need to recognize that this story means to teach us a lesson that all of us are going to have to learn every day of our lives in the form of a choice. You and I have a choice every day between faith and fear. Fear is the way of Judah. A life marked out by fear instead of faith is a life of self-indulgence. It's a life of self-satisfaction and self-gratification. It's a life that says, I don't need to trust God's promises. I can do it on my own. This is the way of Judah. It shows up so many times in our own lives, doesn't it? It's the way of the pagan world around us. It's the way that's deceived by promises made by sin only to find out that all of them were false. Where are you walking like Judah today, friends? Where have you started justifying sin? Isn't that so easy? Oh, it's not that bad. It's just a little white lie. It's just a, a few seconds on my phone looking at things I'm not supposed to be looking at. It's just a little bit extra that I'm going to spend this month that I don't have because I want it now. Isn't it so easy to justify ourselves? Isn't it so easy to fall into the trap of self-gratification? And that's when you live for yourself. You say, nobody else matters but me. Let me speak again to the men, brothers. This is a text speaking directly to us. You look around our society, and one of the biggest problems we have are men who love themselves more than they'll ever love their wives or their kids. And this doesn't mean they, they necessarily walk out on them. It means they can be in a marriage and be totally disconnected from their wives and never be interested in them. And don't think that just because you've been married for a long time that that can't happen to you. I've watched it over the course of pastoral ministry. It is easy to check out. And then it could be the form, it doesn't mean you leave your kids destitute. It means you just don't connect with them. You don't spend time getting to know them. You don't listen to them. And remember that, that God puts men in charge of homes and will hold them to a higher standard. And that's not to terrify us. As we see here, God's got grace for men who are failures, like all of us are. But brothers, one of the things that marks out the ways of Judah is when we repeat what we learn, as 1 Peter 1.18 put it, the feudal ways of our forefathers. I, I'm, I'm old enough now with my kids to remember saying, when I was a kid, I'm never going to do this when I'm a parent. Guess what's happened? I've done things like said things to my kids. Like I remember I hated when my dad said that to me and I've just become rolling off my tongue. There's other things we're giving our kids. And more broadly speaking, there's other things we're carrying around. You see, everybody in here's got a past. And here's the good news from this story. For all the pasts in this room, this story was written to give you the hope of a future that cannot be wrecked because it's God's future. And wherever your past is, and I would venture to say most of us would not want our pasts brought up a whole lot. Whatever your past is, it can be redeemed. 
Wherever you've got in your family background that's been broken, God can fix where you are right now. And that's, therefore, the contrast, the way of Judah versus the way of Jesus. Just like Tamar was welcomed back in the family, that is why Jesus, the Lion of Judah, the one who is more righteous than Tamar, the one who is perfectly righteous, came. In fact, as one commentator notes, what's the name of, of the son here? Perez. You have a footnote in your Bible that says, breaks through. You see, Jesus is the breakthrough son. That's why Tamar and Perez are included in his genealogy in Matthew 1. This is our family tree, friends, if you're a Christian. You and I with pasts and pathogens get welcomed into the family of God because Jesus, the Lion of Judah, is the only righteous one who gives us his righteousness so that our past and our pathogens are covered by our bridegroom who loves us better than Judah ever loved, who never walks away from his children, never shirks his responsibility, always cares for his bride, and loves, loves to redeem the stories of the Judas and the Tamars among us. Can you identify with them? You just feel like you've messed it up so much so often, so many times there's no hope for you. You know that's who Jesus runs to? Do you know that he can't help himself, as it were, but to show mercy to the most broken people, the most sinful people? And here's the other thing Jesus did in his earthly ministry that he's going to do for you. If you ask him, he's going to open blind eyes, just like he did for Judah. You see, we're so blinded to our sin, we're so hardened to it, we don't want it exposed. And it's one of the mercies that Jesus may let us sit in our sin for a while, then expose it all for his good purposes. It's painful when he does exposed things in my life and it's been just painful to see how sin runs so deep in my own heart but I praise him for it because of the fruit that it will begin to bear it's a mercy of the Lord to expose our sin ask him for it say Lord open my eyes to where I'm blinded by my sin and then when that happens, it's like a friend of mine told me this week. He said, God does everything in our lives and orchestrates all our circumstances for, for many reasons, but at least one. And that's to bring us to a point where he's broken us from our self-dependency, our self-justification, so that we will cry out to him, Father, Unless you intervene, I will ruin everything around me. That's what he's doing in your life this morning, my friends. He's bringing you to the point of recognizing that. And in our time, it's so easy to get by day by day and never pray like that. But it's true. If he doesn't step in like he did for Judah, like he did for Tamar, we will do what they did and worse. We will ruin everything around us. And that's why we need the Lion of Judah and his righteousness to preserve us, 
to protect us, to put his arm around us as our faithful heavenly bridegroom and say to us, I have the righteousness you need. I will care for you in your deepest distress. And I love sinners even at their most sinful. Let's pray. Lord, you're about to set a table for us. And we don't deserve to be welcomed by anybody, least of all you. And yet you fling open wide the doors of your house, as it were, and you tell us to come on in, to have a seat, and then you proceed to serve us. And you give us your best, Lord. It's not a cheap meal. You're not a cheap host. So open our eyes as we come to the table. Give us eyes to see Jesus, even as we've heard him preached. We pray in his name. Amen.